0: Welcome aboard the ShipShape podcast, your ultimate destination for marine wisdom and expertise. Our skilled crew, comprised of top boating journalists and experts, is committed to delivering informative and captivating content week after week. We're eager to connect with and learn from our fellow mariners, and we encourage you to share our podcast with your friends. Remember, word of mouth is our lifeblood and if you enjoy an episode, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. By doing so, you're helping us forge a robust community of mariners who can learn, collaborate, and exchange their experiences out on the water.
1: Welcome back to another episode of the Ship Shape Podcast, where we are diving deep into the mysteries, wonders, and challenges of exploring the world's ocean. Today, we're setting sail on a journey of exploration and discovery with Laura Trethaway. She's an award-winning ocean journalist, the author of The Deepest Map, The High Stakes Race to Chart the World's Oceans, and a beacon of knowledge in the vast sea of marine research. From the tales of early mappers to the modern race to chart the ocean floor, she's chronicled it all. Your two co-hosts today are Meryl Shrett, I'm a liveaboard a Hsing, Toshiba 36, in Boston, Massachusetts, and T. Hey guys, welcome to the
2: show, Talha here, I'm aboard my powerboat in Virginia and we're going to be chatting with Laura today and secrets that the ocean holds for us. Welcome to the show, Laura.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: So where are you joining us from today?
3: So yeah, so I I live right now in Hamilton, Ontario, which is uh, just outside Toronto in Canada and You know, it's kind of funny because people ask me all the time, you know, where I'm from or where I live. And it's, I tend to just answer it with currently where I'm based because I've been moving around quite a bit. So I wrote the majority of The Deepest Map while I was living in San Diego. And then you can see that throughout the book. It's very much a San Diego book, a lot of time spent on highways and going around to marine institutions. But um, I won't be in Hamilton for very long. I am actually moving to Germany next year. So I'm Heading back to the ocean and going to the Baltic Sea, so um, nearish to Hamburg. And so totally different ocean, switching it up again.
1: So before we get into the all the research and work that you've done within the marine industry, can you kind of tell us how you ended up here in the first place? What was that <laughs> transition like? Where did you come from?
3: Yeah, so I guess that kind of goes back to, you know, where I grew up. I grew up in Toronto and you know as as you know that's not by any ocean but i grew up as a sailor sort of sailing on lake ontario and then i come from a family that's got a lot of east coast connections so there was a lot of sort of maritime family lore about sailing and sort of the love of the ocean and that sort of translated into us taking summer vacations there so the ocean was sort of like a happy place in a lot of my memories and then um I grew up reading a lot of those great sailing classics. So I really loved Joshua Slocum's Sailing Alone Around the World. That's sort of like a seminal text for me. There's a scene in there where he like spears a turtle through the neck and as like a 12 year old, it was very impactful. So anyways, I loved all these, I loved all these sailing stories. And I found that as I grew up, I met people who had really intense feelings about the ocean one way or the other so some people were really in awe of it some people were really afraid of it some people you know just spent all their money to live nearby it and to do to build their entire life around it so i was really attracted to that and just trying to understand like what is this connection we have to the ocean and i thought that that, that it inspired a lot of extreme reactions in people and so I felt just that, you know, anywhere people feel lost or in love or out of control, like the ocean, I felt like that's a really great place for storytelling. So I thought, I'm going to be an ocean journalist and I'm going to write about this weird connection we have to, you know, the 71% of the planet that we know so little about.
1: So obviously, storytelling is a powerful tool. And it's what humans have used kind of throughout time. So how do you see storytelling being a powerful tool within marine conservation?
3: I guess what I would say to that is that so few people know what it looks like out on the ocean. So for me personally, writing this second book, The Deepest Map, it was actually my first time going out offshore. So like, blue water sailing, or going out farther than, you know, you can see land. That was the first time that happened to me. I'd been an ocean journalist for, you know, five or six years before that, but I'd always done sort of coastal work, going out for like a day with a scientist or a day with some sort of expert. And as soon as I got on a ship for this latest book, I was on a 10-day mapping expedition. And we went off the coast of California for 10 days, sailed from L.A. to Oregon to Astoria and went pretty far off the coast to the point where you can't see land anymore. And I remember that was sort of this incredible moment for me because all of a sudden it dawned on me just how big the ocean is and (laughs) the majority of the planet is is that, (laughs) you know, that it's sky and it's ocean and that's it. And that there's also like a three-dimensional world underneath you too. So there's, you know, miles of ocean all the way down to the seafloor. And I say these statistics about the ocean all the time. You know, it's 71% of the planet's surface. It's 99% of the habitable space on earth. I say those statistics and yet I forget what they mean sometimes and how big they are and how hard it is to wrap your, your mind around. So just going out there was like, I mean, it sounds obvious, but it was like, wow, the ocean is really, really big, (laughs) just (laughs) basic revelation. And so I think that that's what I'm always trying to get across in my writing is just like, this place is really big. We barely understand it. We barely go out there and really experience what it's like to be out on the open ocean. And so with my writing, I'm always trying to bring back that like, this place is really huge (laughs) we don't know it really at all that's always what i'm trying to go for
2: for sure and 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 it's funny because i can really relate to that sort of point where you're you are i mean it's funny i was craving that to be like just the only dot on the ocean you know and you can see no land no other boats no nothing just blue as far as the eye can see and it was it was cathartic in a real way like i remember when it actually happened like I couldn't keep the voice inside me. I just went, woo, yeah, know, and like, nobody there to hear it, but it was, it was just so cool. So I'm glad that, you know, you got to see that. But so, and, and I imagine this happened later on though, like what sort of, have you always been writing about the ocean, but what, what made you get into marine stuff?
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I mean like a lot of writers I've been writing and reading since I was a kid and it took a long time to figure out well, what exactly I wanted to write about. So, you know, as a kid, I was writing plays and forcing my parents to watch them and doing a lot of fiction writing and thinking that I wanted to be a very different type of writer. And then it was only in my 20s, so I guess like 10, 15 years ago now, where I really made the transition into writing about sailing. And then after writing about sailing, that introduced me to scientists and refugees and cruise ship workers all these various people who are out on the ocean. And I think that I'm always a bit attracted to the underdog, like any kind of invisible hidden world that's going on that really attracts me. And so when I started to meet sailors, people who had gone out to sea and had that experience that I was talking about, where you see the ocean and you see the sky and you realize how few people have had that experience of being totally offshore and just like a little dot on the planet. I felt like they had some kind of like hidden insider knowledge and I wanted that too. And I also wanted to write about that world. And so it was really being attracted to sort of the unseen, the overlooked, anybody who's doing anything that doesn't get enough attention is sort of unsung. That's what I wanted to write about. And I felt that the ocean is really the biggest possible space you could get for sort of an invisible hidden world. It has all these implications for our daily life. Like it creates the oxygen that we breathe every second breath comes from the ocean. It carries our internet. So this conversation we're having right now brought to you by the ocean. (laughs) It's running along fiber optic cables on the bottom of the seafloor. The majority of the items in my room right now, you know, like they all traveled on a ship at one point or another, a lot of our food, the, basically the modern world functions on the ocean on shipping. So I just think it's just such a vastly overlooked place. And I just wanted to to bring that to people. So yeah, so that was really the, the attraction. Because, you know, as a writer, you get kind of hooked on one idea. And then when the idea keeps e- opening up and opening up and opening up further, and you're just like, well, this is my life's work right here. <laughs> this is what I got to do.
2: Nice. Okay. So we will definitely do a deep dive into some of the cool stats and stuff you've already said, but just in a nutshell for our listeners, maybe just, I know you've written multiple books on the ocean itself. Like, can you just give us in a nutshell, what sort of the broad topics are that you cover?
3: Yeah, I know when you say that you're an ocean journalist, that could really be anything that could be labor, that could be the environment that could be adventure exploration, basically, like I do it all. Um, I do all those things. My first book, The Imperiled Ocean, which came out in 2020, horrible year for book publishing. And it is a collection of essays. And each essay in that book is a different story of a human connection to the ocean. So there's interviews in there with refugees who crossed the Mediterranean during the 2015-2016 European refugee crisis. There's interviews with cruise ship workers. There's interviews with scientists, cinematographers, all kinds of different people who have like a unique connection to the ocean. And through writing that book, I realized that I really liked interviewing, I interviewed a sturgeon scientist in that book who was really amazing. He hauls in these huge prehistoric fish, the size of grand pianos. And uh, I just had a great time fishing with him, which I was someone who thought that fishing was possibly the most boring activity you could dream up. And uh, he, I, I really got into fishing with him. So that that made me realize. Okay, I wanna I wanna talk more to scientists. I wanna talk more to people who are out there trying to understand this space. So for the latest book, the deepest map, I decided to drill down more into that and to focus more on scientists and exploration and people who are going out to sea. So I would say that's that's more my beat now. Is that I'm very much into environmental science writing. But then again, it could change for the next book. So. Please don't pigeonhole me.
1: <laughs> so I'm kind of interested in hearing some of your significant challenges you've faced as being an ocean journalist. And how has that shaped your perspective on the ocean?
3: Well, I think one of the hardest things, and maybe this is something that all writers say, but I think it's particularly pertinent for ocean ocean writers, is just the money aspect. Like, going to sea is expensive, We were talking earlier about just how much it costs to run one of these ocean exploration vessels. It's upwards of $50,000 a day for the staff and the diesel to keep these ships running. So for me as a writer, you know, I have to talk my way onto these ships and somehow get a chance to cover what's going on. And sometimes it's relatively easy to get on, but if there's no berth available, then I can't go on board and I can't tell the story. So just the money aspects. And, and then that also translates into time too. If you're going off on one of these expeditions, sometimes they can be five weeks, six weeks. I don't know too many working writers who have the time to, to spend going out to sea for that, for that long. So it really is, it's challenging to cover that space because it's geographically huge and the people who work there are really diverse. So I think it's just a money time factor that's, that's tricky. But also as, um, also as a woman, I would say it's really hard to cover certain types of stories at sea. There's a wonderful writer called Ian Urbina who wrote a book called The Outlaw Ocean. And he specifically looks at crime at sea. And he is going aboard ships in the South China Sea where there are, you know, high fishing vessels that employ slave labor. And he's crawling through like, you know, nasty kind of tunnels inside the the ship and that kind of thing. And it's just like, as as a woman being in that space, I would be like, no, thank you. I do not want to. And just like actually just dangerous to be out there. He's kind of hopscotching on boats that are pretty sketchy all over these really liminal, dangerous spaces. So reading that book, I was just like, as a woman, I just can't do that kind of reporting. So I am sort of limited by my time, money, and just like who I am as a person. I'm limited by what spaces I can report on, I would say. So, so yeah, so those are some of the, the challenges that I face. Not complaining. I have the best job in the world. <laughs> Going out and following my curiosity wherever it takes me, it's still absolutely mind-blowing that I get to do this kind of work, but there are just natural limitations.
2: And so Laura, you already mentioned statistic, and we were going to sort of bring that up later on, but I'm glad you did right in the beginning, and you said 71% of the world is ocean and 99% of the ocean is habitable. Can you elaborate on that a little more and just tell us what you mean by that?
0: Right,
3: yeah, so 71% of the planet's surface is ocean. So um, the majority of that is international waters, so the high seas. And then you get some coastal, some coastal waters thrown in there too, which belong to various countries. And, you know, we all have our territorial waters. And then the 99% statistic, that's actually refers to the habitable space on earth. So, you know, we kind of think of land, the habitable space on land, you know, it's, it goes from the ground up, but it's not a hugely vertical space in terms of habitable space. The ocean it goes way deeper. So the ocean, on average, is two and a half miles deep. So to put that in context, that's um, ten times State Empire State Building. It's it, it's hard to to wrap your mind around that. I think to to kind of picture the Empire State Building and to to see it stacked up ten times on top of each other. That's how deep the ocean is on average. And there's animals living all through that water column. So when we say 99% of the habitable space on earth is ocean, we're talking about that vertical water column where there's animals living all across it.
1: As you had said earlier, your first book was kind of these stories throughout marine and people's attachment to the ocean and, you know, how they've lived on it or experienced it. But through all of these interviews, have you found some commonalities between them?
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, I did find a lot of that we actually had a lot more in common with each other than we thought. That's something that I really love about reporting on the ocean is that people can look very different when they're at sea, but they are often out on the ocean for very similar reasons in that first book, The Imperiled Ocean, that I was talking about, I found that I sort of started to group different people together based on what they were doing out there. So um, there were sort of a few elemental reasons why people were drawn to the ocean, like the refugees that I was covering who were crossing the ocean from Africa or the Middle East into Europe, these refugees, they really had a lot in common with cruise ship workers, which was another group of people that I covered when I was writing this book, they were both sort of looking for a better life and they were willing to take a risk to do that. And so the ocean sort of offered opportunity. You go into this place where you might not have a whole lot of control, but you might be able to slip through and come out the other side with more than you had before. I also found that the activists that I was covering, I wrote a lot about activists who were trying to uh, limit plastic pollution in the ocean. I found that they had a lot in, in common with scientists. They were both trying to, to look for solutions. They were both trying to understand problems that were going on in the ocean and, and try and find a way out of them. And then I also covered sailors, like live aboard sailors and sailors who were crossing the ocean, so blue water sailors, as well as ocean artists. So I, I, I talked to a cinematographer and I found that the sailors and the artists really had a lot in common, that they were both looking for sort of freedom and beauty that they they wanted a type of enlightenment from the ocean and so that's kind of how i started to group all those people together and when i talk about those groups that's kind of like a very sunny portrait of the ocean because there's also a lot of people who go to the ocean to sort of slip between rules and to mm, um, pirates Pirates, exactly <laughs>
2: like,
3: <laughs> are a real thing so i'm talking about people looking for freedom and beauty, but there's also people looking for freedom in a different way, you know, looking for Yeah.
2: Freedom. They want freedom too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: exactly. They want freedom in a different way. Yeah.
2: Yeah. True. Okay. So in, in your writings, you, you often emphasize the human stories connected to the ocean. Why do you believe it's essential to highlight like those personal narratives alongside the scientific stuff that's going on?
3: Right. I mean, it's just, it's just hard to tell a story without humans. In general, we are attracted to stories about each other. And the ocean typically doesn't have a whole lot of humans on it. You know, That's a space that's pretty hostile to us. So in order to talk about the ocean, I have to talk about the people who are on the ocean. So that's really the way into talking about the ocean is through, through humans and through people who are out there. But I also just love talking about people, as I mentioned before, who have sort of hidden knowledge people who think that they don't have really important stories to tell those are always the people that I want to talk to and you find a lot of those people out in the ocean maybe it's just because they've seen some of the wildest stuff out there that they don't think it's wild anymore they've you know been through crazy storms they've been working in all kinds of conditions it doesn't really blow their mind but they have this sort of unvarnished truth inside them about like what it's like to be out onto the on the ocean and they're seeing so many incredible things. And so it's just like getting at that truth inside people at what they're seeing out there. That's really what I'm going for. And I think that they have incredible stories in them to tell. So the, the main character in in the latest book, Cassie Giovanni, she's this ocean mapper. And she was hired by a multimillionaire explorer, Victor Vescovo, to go find the deepest points of all five oceans. And to me... It, blows my mind that somebody was hired to basically go out and find the limits of our planet. And when I called her up to talk to her about this, her response was literally like, why are you talking to me? Like, I don't have anything to say, really. <laughs> it just blows my mind that somebody who who's doing that kind of foundational knowledge about our planet uh, doesn't think that they have a good story to tell. And as a journalist, whenever I find those people, I'm like, I've struck gold. This person is incredible uh, and i want to hear what they have to say
1: you know one of the things is we we've done these kind of similar type of exploration um interviews in the past and most recently we had an interview with the famous treasure hunter dr elise spence and you know it's certainly shocking to hear that treasure hunting really didn't start until scuba was invented which was after world war ii so your book the deepest map in the the race to chart the world's ocean Can you give our listeners kind of a a history lesson on, you know, ocean exploration from the beginning to kind of where it is now?
3: Oh, my Lord, that is a huge question. (laughs) Um, (sighs) Well, I guess I could talk a little bit about, you know, maybe the last century would be a good way to kind of start, because I think that's where things start to change quite a bit. So up until, you know, the Industrial Revolution, people are exploring with with wind-powered ships, and they're going around and using, you know, the winds to to discover all kinds of different interesting areas in the world. Um, there's a fantastic book by Louis Dartnell called Origins. It's all about how. Um, well, there's one chapter in it where he talks specifically about how winds have powered exploration and how that's that's taken us to all these different corners of the world. So when you talk about like the Southern Ocean. Um, That was sort of like the, the highway of the seas back in the day that you could go down into the roaring 40s. What is it? The furious 50s, the screaming 60s, like all those various latitudes. And you could basically just hitch a ride and go around the world really quickly. So yeah, so, you know, up until the industrial revolution, that's how we were working our way around the ocean and exploring. And then more recently, you know, we were using diesel, we're using fuel- to go out and explore the seas. That has been incredible in taking us to new parts of the map that we never got to explore before because the winds didn't take us there. And then within the the deepest map, specifically what I'm looking at is like the pioneering use of sonar. So after World War II, yeah, scuba is invented, but then also there's huge leaps and bounds being made in sonar technology. So sending out pings of sound that go down to the bottom of the seafloor, ricochet and come back up to a hydrophone attached to the ship. And then that is letting us see this entire landscape that's going on underneath the ship that was sort of invisible to us up until that point. So, you know, before we had sonar, we were lowering down lead lines, getting one kind of depth point and then pulling it back up to the to the surface. And all of a sudden, sonar is allowing us to see this, like, three-dimensional portrait of seascape underneath us. And so that really changes so much about how we can use and explore the ocean, because that sort of three-dimensional space that I'm talking about has sort of opened up before us. I mean, it's incredible. We're finding out now that a lot of the places that we thought were, you know, the deepest points on the map... They weren't really the deepest points on the map because we could only find one little point. And then all of a sudden when we have sonar to kind of show us this vast spread of territory underneath us, we can start to put this whole map together and we can see how it, you know, there's canyons, there's valleys. This deepest point on the map is just where we happen to drop one lead line. But as soon as you see the entire territory, you can kind of figure out how this region is put together. So that's really what the deepest map explores is just like how this underwater world that we've never been able to fully see is is coming together piece by piece by piece. And that's really been possible through sonar and through, you know, through through diesel engines to take us to these, these new parts in the map.
2: Interesting. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think sonar was a byproduct of war, right? They wanted to detect mines and so they, right, they made sonar. Yeah, yeah, like, exactly. Again,
3: Second World War, right? they use sonar. Um, that was the the development of um, multi-beam. So there's single beam and there's multi-beam sonar. So a single beam is you know what you use for navigation. It's just one beam that goes down, ricochets off the bottom, comes back up. We had that. We had that before. Multi-beam, they pioneered that through the use of throughout the Second World War, and this is when we're starting to get uh, kind of anti-submarine warfare and the rise of of kind of detecting subs at sea so um, mm-hmm. yeah so that's kind of how that that grows up and so that's where a lot of those leaps and bounds are happening is through warfare uh, it's kind mm. of like you know side effect of science it's often pushed forward through um through, through military and the uh, and the industrial complex too
2: mm. and so, i mean i just wanted to segue with that question if you think like such a huge development came out of war, and right now the world's in a crazy place anyway. How do you see the relationship between humans and the sea evolving in the future?
3: Yeah, that's a really good question. Because um, when I started writing the book The The Deepest Map, it's all about this initiative called Seabed 2030 that's um, run by this group of academic mappers who are at universities and institutions all over the world. And they are trying to create the first publicly available map of the seafloor. And so they're really behind like sharing data, collaborating across borders in this hope of creating a super map that all of humanity can use. And it's a really noble, lofty goal, but it also really sounds like a goal like pre-COVID <laughs> and also pre-Ukraine war and pre a lot of the geopolitical tensions that we're seeing today. So the recent bombing of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and Nord Stream 1, Pipeline 2, um, a lot of the tensions in the South China Sea that we're seeing, I just expect that we're going to be heading into a period of sort of increasing geopolitical tension. And when we enter those periods, one of the things that tends to be sacrificed first is a lot of that collaboration across borders and a lot of that sharing of data and knowledge, particularly in a place like the ocean, because it's a very uncharted space and so as soon as you know more about a space than your enemies then you have a an advantage in that in that space. And so I think one of the first things we're going to see impacted in in ocean research and ocean science is that is that sharing of information. So Seabed 2030 their goal is to create this first map by the end of the decade, but I think that that's going to run into a lot of headwinds over the next couple years as people start to sort of tamp down on how much information we're sharing. And we sort of head into this sort of new Cold War era. During the last Cold War, you know, the same kind of thing happened. There was a lot of restrictions around how much data could be shared. You know, a lot of big discoveries have been delayed because of that. I was reading this great book by Naomi Oresky, who's this Harvard historian of science, and she thinks that a lot of the military secrecy around maps delayed the discovery of plate tectonics by 30 years. Mainly around no <laughs> seafloor maps. So, um, so yeah, that you know, we're going to head into another period, I think, of a lot of secrecy. And I think discovery will sort of be the, the victim of that.
1: So throughout your experience, you've done so many different interviews and spoken to so many groups of people. And this race to map the ocean floor has a ton of different actors in it everything from academics to billionaires who just want to get to the deepest part of every ocean to people that are seeing the ocean in commercial interests. So can you kind of talk about the different actors that are at play in this uh, research and also maybe discuss a little bit about the commercial interest of this deep sea mapping?
3: Yeah, it's a a pretty motley crew of people out at sea, which is like always the way it seems to be.
1: (laughs) <laughs> yeah.
3: Um, so yeah, so as you mentioned, there's scientists out there, there's adventurers, there's people, you know, mining proponents, government experts, all kinds of different people who are sort of colliding in this space. It was actually kind of one of the most difficult parts of writing this book is that it was really hard to kind of get everybody in the same room to talk about the same thing at the same time. Like that's just just never going to happen when it comes to the ocean. It's just so difficult because everybody has different priorities. You know, people might be super concerned about navigation in one part of the world, and they might have absolutely zero interest in, you know, ice coverage in Antarctica in the spring or something like that. You know, they're just, there's just too many interests going on. So CBED 2030, that was one of the main challenges for them was just like how to bring all these people together to create this map. And similarly, when it comes to the deep sea a lot of the information that's being discovered right now it's coming out through a mix of research as well as industry so sometimes i i think people can think of academic pursuits at sea as like purely a scientific endeavor but they're often sort of funded by industry in a lot of ways so um there's a big push right now to to mine the deep sea and to open up the deep sea as soon as 2024 or 2025. So during the book, I actually went to this um, intergovernmental meeting in Jamaica, in Kingston, Jamaica, where every four months, these delegates and diplomats meet and discuss whether they should open up the high seas to commercial mining. The high seas, as you guys probably know, it, it belongs to everyone. So it belongs to, you know, all of humanity, and we're all supposed to be using it for the same for the good of humanity and share those proceeds um, from mining. That's how it was originally created and written up in international law. But there's a lot of various players sort of shadowy players in that world who are kind of positioning themselves to, to profit more than others. And so, um, so when I went down to this meeting, there was just a lot of debate, a lot of arguments, Between various countries and the people that you would expect to be for commercial mining weren't necessarily for it. A lot of the mining, resource mining heavy countries, they were against deep sea mining because that would sort of cut into their profits and proceeds. So you kind of have these unexpected actors who would be against it. But at the same time, there's a lot of scientists who are benefiting from the money that's being poured into studying the deep sea from mining companies. So one of the main actors in this space is a a Canadian company called um, The Metals Company, and they estimate that they've poured about $75 million into ocean research over the last few years. Um, And a lot of that's going to scientists who might not be able to get that money any other way. So it's not necessarily so black and white between like the good guys and the bad guys. There's a lot of mixing between research and industry and um, particularly when a new frontier opens up that could, you know, some money could be made. There's a lot of different actors who are in there and some people have noble intentions and some have less than noble intentions.
0: Ahoy investors! Are you on the lookout for a unique opportunity to invest in a thriving industry? Set your sights on ShipShape, the innovative platform connecting boat and yacht owners with top-notch marine service providers. Our team is committed to revolutionizing the marine repair and refit market in North America. But we can't sail these seas alone. With your support, we can enhance our platform and create a significant impact in the industry. Don't let this exciting investment opportunity drift away. Contact us today to learn more about joining our voyage. Reach out to us at info at shipshape.pro.
1: So when we talk about deep sea mining, you know, we have to kind of bring up this energy transition that the world is facing at the present. And, you know, there's kind of a mindset of this energy transition is so paramount to human existence that hey, you know, do everything you can at all cost to uh, get all these resources. So can you talk about how things are weighed from that perspective and kind of your thoughts on the subject?
3: Yeah, so there's been a lot of different sort of mining opportunities that have opened up over the last couple of years where they've been branded as, as necessary for like the green energy transition. And deep sea mining is is definitely one of them. When we talk about deep sea mining, the main type of mining that would happen, what they see happening is um, there's something called manganese nodules, which are these concretions basically of ocean minerals that have scavenged that have been scavenged from the water over millions of years around maybe like a prehistoric shark tooth that drifted down and then it created this like dense accumulation of minerals. Um, So there's things like cobalt and manganese and rare earth elements that are contained inside that nodule, and they lie loose on the seafloor. And so that makes them more attractive to mining because you can lower down these sort of army tank collectors that go across the seafloor, hoover them up, and then send them up to a ship that's waiting above, and then the tailings get pumped down and released back into the water. And so that's the kind of main uh, mining that we're talking about The advocates for that kind of mining say that those minerals are absolutely critical. So like cobalt is one of the main um, metals that's in those manganese nodules that they're after. And a couple of years ago, it was looking like cobalt was going to be super important for batteries and EV cars and electric vehicle cars. Now it seems like things are changing a little bit and um, the industry is moving away from cobalt because it's a little too too heavy and it's got a horrible human rights record a lot of it comes from the Congo the Democratic Republic of Congo so um, various big EV uh, makers like Elon Musk have started to shift away from cobalt and the industry seems to be moving more towards lithium so, within these like these new mining ventures that are saying like we absolutely have to mine this mineral for and uh, the green transition, it's just a little hard to believe that argument from my point of view because we're still in such a state of flux. Like research is changing. There's so much advancement happening with like recycling technology. We don't even know really what metals are going to be necessary in a few years. So as soon as somebody says that, like, we absolutely need this metal for this thing to happen. Well, it's like the industry is changing so much. We don't know where we're going to be in eight years and if we're going to need that that metal. So particularly when it comes to deep sea mining, a lot of the consensus amongst, you know, corporations and countries, I think like um, 700 some deep sea scientists have signed a position saying like, please don't mine this just yet. A bunch of corporations like Google and Samsung and Volvo and BMW said the same thing. 20 some countries have said it also. So there's a big group of people who are just saying, like, we don't need these metals just yet. Maybe we're coming from the coming for them in 10 to 15 years. You know, maybe that's still out there on the horizon and we won't be able to protect this space forever. But in terms of whether we need them right now, I just, I just don't think that the the science is saying and the industry is saying that we need it right at this moment so i think that we could hold off for a little bit longer protect this space for a little bit longer and even you know understand and study this the deep sea space because it's really like a totally unknown world in a lot of ways so let's study it for a little bit longer before we have to tear it up for you know some metals that we don't need right away
2: so maybe we can keep the focus on deep sea mining as well but i wanted to broaden it just a little bit and in in your research and writings how have you seen just human activities such as pollution and overfishing and deep sea mining um, impact the deeper regions of the ocean Mm. is it destructive like what's going on
3: yeah well um one of the the mappers that i interviewed for the book he said um the future is offshore and i really liked that quote in a lot of ways because I thought it really captured what was going on um, at sea right now that we are, you know, we're pushing out into areas that we've never been before and we're going deeper than we've ever been before. So a lot of fishing is pushing deeper, going after species that we didn't used to eat, going after fish that um, used to be considered sort of like lower tier fish. We're going after those fish and sort of fishing out deeper areas of the ocean. When it comes to mapping, one of the main reasons for for why people in the past used to be interested around seamounts, trying to figure out where underwater mountains were, was because a lot of life clusters around those mountains. So you can target those mountains and you can just like go fish them out. You can use trawling to kind of just like decimate the tops of them and pull up all the animals. So yeah, so I mean, there is a lot of destructive industries that are happening and they're they're kind of going deeper and further. And a lot of that is aided by technology. Our technology has come further over the last 10 years than I think anybody ever expected. So um, one of the, the other chapters in the book, I cover this company called Sail Drone. I'm not sure if you guys know them, but they are doing incredible things with drones right now. So they are sending these autonomous drones off to sea for you know, weeks at a time. And these drones are bringing back images from the ocean that, you know, no one thought that they would ever see before. So they were, they sent a drone through a category five hurricane off the Bahamas two years ago. And that footage is wild because it is, you should look it up on, on, on YouTube. It's like 2021, I think it happened. And you're basically looking at like what a dead man would see, <laughs> right before their ship overturned because this drone is getting slammed by the hurricane. And, you know, a couple of years ago, no one thought this was possible. No one thought you could send off an autonomous drone to kind of survive a hurricane like that. So another ocean mapper called this like black magic for, for ocean mapping, what these drones are doing. So the technology has really helped us like kind of push into these spaces and see these things that we never really thought we were going to see before. So it's really, it's opening up a new world in a lot of ways, but it's also a world that we have to be careful with because we're all of a sudden getting these powers that, you know, we didn't really, we, we're we getting these superpowers that we never had before.
2: What about you know? mining though? Like what impact does that have?
3: One of the main environmental concerns with mining is these, um, the tailings that I mentioned. There's lots of concerns about mining, but one of the chief environmental concerns is when the tailings get pumped back down into the ocean, after you pluck out these manganese nodules up on the ship, you pump these tailings down into the ocean. And the mining companies say that they're gonna release them pretty close to the seafloor. So there's a lot of debate about where they should release them in the water column. But if they release them farther up into the water column, they can spread really, really far. And we don't actually have a precise number of how far those tailings can spread. And there's toxins in those tailings so there's going to be some kind of set like toxic sediments that are kind of filtering through the ocean and uh so that's bad because various animals could be eating them and then that could filter through the food chain But then also the ocean is generally a pretty clear place, pretty crystal clear environment. And so all of a sudden you're releasing this dust storm throughout the the ocean. You don't know how far it's going to spread because there's no borders at sea. So it could just spread for miles. And um, there's a lot of concerns about how that would impact fishing primarily. Because this is going to happen in the Pacific Ocean, near to a lot of islands, like Pacific Islands that rely on artisanal fishing, so like tuna fishing. So how are those animals going to survive, like swimming through a dust storm of like toxic sediments? Like, I mean, the prognosis for that—it doesn't sound very good. So that's that's one of the chief concerns. The other one is that those manganese nodules that are down on the bottom of the seafloor, once you take those out, that is the habitat. That is what animals—fifty percent or so of the animals that live down on the seafloor—that's what they live on um, in that environment. It's sort of like a—it's a hard foothold. For animals to live on the seafloor, otherwise it's just this kind of muddy, muddy sediment. So the animals really need that 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 manganese nodule to live on. So if you take that foothold for their environment out of the environment, what's going to live there? We don't know. It's just it's a huge experiment on a vast scale. Like these these mining sites, they're the one that they're considering in in uh, the Pacific. It's the size of Europe, so it's an insanely big mining site. Wow and uh and yeah we don't really know what the outcome will be of the plumes the sediment plumes and also these um stripping away the manganese nodules
1: so i'd be a fool not to ask something related to ocean gate but um (laughs) you know in in terms of uh the whole thing with ocean gate right like they were supported by uh, some heavy hitters and partnerships but as the whole thing unfolded a lot of these organizations tried to distance themselves from them and um, you know clearly there's some balance between exploration and safety and you know what does that suggest about the current state of exploration maybe just yeah. give a little bit about Ocean Gate as well
3: so the, the titan that submersible that imploded from Ocean Gate you know sort of infamous now that happened about two weeks before my book came out so I've answered a lot of questions about Oceangate and and the, the implosion of that submersible. It's funny because for the book, I was actually trying to get on a submersible. I spent about six months emailing private operators, <laughs> scientific institutions all over the world asking for a ride. You know, as I was saying, you know, time, money, trying to get a, a, a ride on a ship, I, I tried to do the same thing for a submersible. I asked Victor Vescovo, actually, the guy who did um, the Five Deeds Expedition. I asked for a ride on his Submersible, too. But he was charging three quarters of a million dollars. And I was like, I don't think my advance is going to cover that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so,
3: um, so, 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 yeah, so I talked to a lot of people and no, everyone turned me down. No one said yes. And after they very politely said no, I would ask, if there's anyone else they would recommend. And no one recommended Ocean Gate, which I thought was very telling. And also I heard a couple of scary warnings about Ocean Gate along the way. So I deliberately did not reach out to them and ask them for a ride. Very glad I didn't. But you know, I thought the thing the thing that stuck out for me with with Titan was, you know, it was sort of an open secret in the in the community that this company was. Perhaps cutting kind of corners, that they weren't certifying their sub. Um, but I think it sort of spoke to a larger concern about like money in the industry, that over the last 10, 15 years, there's been a lot of um, sort of private money entering the entering the ocean research space. And that's been really helpful in a lot of ways because ocean research is really underfunded, particularly compared to to space research and space exploration. But um, There were concerns about some of these new players entering the ocean research space. Like, who are these billionaires, millionaires who are all of a sudden pouring money in? Um, Do they care about science? Do they care about safety? Do they care about all of these things that we have to care about because working offshore is a really dangerous and difficult place? So I think that the Ocean Gate incident, like, really brought to a head something that's been brewing in the community for a long time, just like concerns about who these players were and whether they were following the rules. There are a lot of good players who are coming in. So the Schmidt Ocean Institution, really good outfit run by Wendy and Eric Schmidt. You know, Eric Schmidt is the former founder of, or a former CEO of Google. I'm sorry. Edit that part out. I think so. (laughs) But, um, Anyways, you know, there are a lot of good players within that, within this new kind of private money world, but there's also some, some uncertainty. It's interesting, actually, there was a whole Canadian connection within this uh, Titan controversy where um, the Memorial University of Newfoundland actually partnered with uh, OceanGate. They will maintain that it is not a partnership, that all that they did was offer some storage space and some lab space for OceanGate. But when before the implosion happened, Memorial University was talking to a lot of news outlets and really celebrating this partnership with Titan. And, um, you know, I think that something that really didn't get spoken about a lot within that whole Titan implosion thing was that why were we, why were people so excited to partner with this tourist operation that was basically sending people down to look at a mass grave site? Like it's kind of
2: mm-hmm.
3: important
2: Weird. <laughs> <Yeah>.
3: <laughs> and people just get so obsessed with the titanic you know there's really a lot of titanic fever out there people just so obsessed with going to see you know um you know some cutlery on the sea floor or whatnot they really kind of overlook the fact that like you know 1500 people died down there so yeah so so titan brought up a lot of a lot of things that had sort of been circulating within that world for a long time Long story short,
2: I'm glad I didn't get a ride. <laughs> <laughs> right, that would have been sad. Um, no, but honestly, I agree with you. I don't, I do not get the obsession at all. It's funny. As soon as that happened, everybody, like all my friends, were texting me, and they're like, "What are your thoughts about this?" I was like, "Why did they go?" I don't yeah. get it. Yeah, um, you know. but it's okay to, sh- to shift gears a little though. In in the beginning, you'd mentioned. I think you'd said that every second breath we draw comes from the ocean. And obviously, we know the ocean plays a significant role in regulating the Earth's climate. Can you elaborate on how the deep sea specifically contributes to this regulation?
3: Yeah. So um, the ocean in general is absorbing a lot of the heat and carbon that we're producing on a changing planet right now. So the ocean is really responsible for sort of buffering a lot of the worst impacts of climate change. But in terms of the deep sea, what I was talking about with Mining another one of the the concerns about stirring up the bottom of the seafloor is that there could be a lot of carbon encased in that sediment down there. So you know, when a whale dies and drifts down to the bottom of the seafloor, they bring their carbon all the way down to the seafloor, and it gets buried down there. And there's you know millions of years, billions of years of carbon sort of locked up in that seafloor. So um, One of the concerns about deep sea mining is that like we don't know what would happen if you send this army tank like nodule collector down to like plow up the bottom of the seafloor. Like we don't really know what we're unleashing when we do that. And is that going to impact the ocean's ability to absorb carbon the same way it's done in the past? So that's sort of another sort of climate change concern that like This is sort of an experiment with something that we don't really want to be tinkering with right now. Like the ocean is already on the verge of not being able to provide a lot of the ecosystem services that we really need it to keep providing. Like we need it to keep absorbing heat. We need it to keep absorbing carbon. Do you really want to screw with this this function at this point in time when we're we're already pushing the ocean to the limit in a lot of ways? So yeah, so that's like one of the bigger sort of climate change impacts that that hasn't actually been factored into a lot of the ocean research now. So when you read a lot of these estimates about the outcomes of deep sea mining, a lot of scientists are really pushing the studies to include climate change impacts, because like, that's another thing that really hasn't been factored into a lot of the research that's been done so far.
1: Well, Laura, this was an exceptional interview. Could you tell our listeners where people can find you and, you know, purchase your book and read more about what you're doing?
3: Sure, yeah. I am on Twitter, perhaps not for much longer, or X as we're calling it now. Um, Why would you
2: do? (laughs) (laughs) Are you getting censored? No.
3: Yeah, so I might be over on Blue Sky or Mastodon very shortly, but my handle is at Ltrethew, so L-T-R-E-T-H-E-W. I have a website that is my name, .ca. And yeah, you can find my book, both of my books, at you know, all the usual places, Amazon, your local bookstore, you can order it there and um, please leave a review. Please leave a book review. I read and I love every single one. Doesn't even matter if it's a bad review.
2: Sweet. So I do have like a couple of just closing questions though. Um, One of them is like, what was your sort of most profound personal takeaway or realization about the ocean uh, having written these books? And then, and you can maybe even just intertwine this next question with it, is it for somebody trying to get into ocean journalism, what would your tips for them be?
3: Ooh, okay, I think I'll t- tackle the first one or the second one first. Um, so how to get into ocean journalism. Well, I would find a magazine that's willing to write and support those those types of stories. So there's there's one magazine that's been Incredibly helpful that I would recommend everybody read called um, Hakai Magazine. And so, right when I was graduating for, with my second degree, I did a degree in creative writing and masters, and I wrote my first book. The master sort of gave me the space I needed to to write that book. And then, as I was graduating, this magazine started up Hakai Magazine, and they're based out of Victoria, British Columbia, and they focus exclusively on the ocean so coastal sciences and societies that's their tagline and it was like it was meant to be like i just started writing for them all the time and they've been a huge supporter of my work and you know they really see value in in telling these very you know what a lot of people would consider niche stories about the ocean they really see value in telling them So I never sort of get any questions, well, you know, they want me to tell good stories obviously, but I never get a lot of the questions around like, but why is this important? Like, can you really unpack like why the regular person should care? They really get why we should be talking about the ocean on this like fundamental level. And so I'd say like finding one of those supporters to sort of lift up your work is, is gonna be key. So there's Hakai, but there's also a lot of other magazines that are getting off the ground all the time that can do, that can be that kind of champion that you need for this kind of work. Well, I think the the thing that I that sort of kicked off the whole second book that still sort of blows my mind is that is the story of Cassie Bon Giovanni. Like it still kind of blows my mind that this ocean mapper who is 25 years old, uh, that she went on to find the deepest points of all five oceans for this multi-millionaire explorer who wanted to go dive them in his own private submersible. It still sort of blows my mind that we did not know where the deepest five points of all oceans were. I don't know why. I just think that is, you know, we know where Mount Everest is. We know Mauna Kea. We know where the highest heights are. Why do we not know where the deepest depths are? That still continues to blow my mind that we didn't we didn't know the, the bottom limits of our planet and why we didn't care about that information. You know, that's still... Sort of just like tickles my fancy whenever I think about it.
2: <laughs> hmm. Anything you'd like to leave our listeners with at the final thought?
3: Yeah, you know, I mean, I hope that, uh, you know, people continue to read and enjoy stories about the ocean. You know, I'm always kind of working working my hardest to, to bring great stories to people because um, to go back to, you know, the very beginning of this conversation, the stories that I fell in love with, you know, the Joshua Slocums, Bernard Matessier, Jules Verne, all these ocean ocean writers, some of them fiction, some of them nonfiction. I mean, those people really made me fall in love with, with the ocean. And so when I kind of look at the writing that's being done about the ocean today, I think there's a lot of incredible stories out there. And I'm just hoping that, you know, I'm, I'm bringing people into that world again and like providing the kind of stories that made me fall in love with it when I was like, you know, a kid, when I was a teenager. So I'm just, I'm just trying to do the same thing.
2: Ooh, awesome. Keep it up. Well, it was great talking to you. Yeah, Laura. Thanks so much for joining us. And uh, hopefully we'll interview you after your next book. <laughs> Good luck.
0: Check back every Tuesday for our latest episode. And be sure to like, share, and subscribe to Shipshape.pro. Pro, 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 pro.